This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Money laundering is an act of concealing the origins of illicit funds to make them appear legitimate. But how does it work exactly and how do we prevent it? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Raymond Ram. He's a certified fraud examiner and an anti-money laundering specialist at Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. Welcome to the show, Raymond. Thank you for having me. Now, Raymond, let's start from the basics. How would you define money laundering in simple terms? Now, money laundering can be defined as a complex process through which illegally obtained funds are made to appear legitimate. This essentially is a game of hide and seek with authorities where the proceeds of criminal activities are hidden within the formal financial system to evade detection. Now, we do have AMLA PUA 2001, or for short AMLA, which criminalizes the act of money laundering here in Malaysia. Right. So why is this money laundering, right? For those who may not understand exactly what's going on here, why is it considered a significant issue in the financial world? Now, money laundering is definitely a significant concern in the financial world because it can undermine the stability and credibility of financial institutions and distort global markets. Now, it also indirectly facilitates other criminal activities such as uh, drug trafficking, fraud, corruption, or to some extent, even terrorism. An example of its potential to destabilize economies is seen in the case of 1MDB scandal that we had in Malaysia where billions were misappropriated through money laundering, leading to significant economic and reputational fallout. Now, why is it considered bad? At the end of the day, uh, it is the idea of hiding uh, funds that come from illegitimate sources, right? So, because when we see certain red flags of someone spending over and beyond their own means, it would automatically trigger authorities to come forth and try to investigate further and to find out what are the other serious offenses that have been perpetrated which led to such a scheme, which led to them having such funds or even trying to you know, mask where those funds had come from. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the steps um, involved in uh, money laundering. Um, Raymond, what are the typical stages involved in the money laundering process? Now, most of us watch uh, Netflix dramas and do uh, <laughs> to see how it works. But then again, uh, just to put things into context, they have three main stages to money laundering, right? right? So the first of which would be placement. This is where illicit money is introduced into the legitimate financial system. Now, this can be done uh, through various means, such as depositing large amounts of cash into bank accounts or using it to purchase assets. Number two would be, of course, layering. Now, in this stage, involves complex transactions aimed at obscuring the audit trail and severing the link with the original crime. This could involve multiple transactions, often moving money around various banks, various accounts, or countries to complicate the trail per se. And lastly, of course, we see integration. This is the final stage where the cleaned money, supposedly cleaned money, is integrated into the legitimate economy, often by way of investments into illegal businesses or purchase of assets. It becomes much harder here to detect and trace back the illegal source once it reaches this particular stage. Right. 
could we dive into uh, each step, um, you know, a little bit more detail? Yeah. So how do money launderers, like you, you mentioned the three steps. So let's talk about placement. How do money launderers disguise the illicit origins of their funds during the placement stage of money laundering? Now, money launderers, money launderers may use several methods to disguise illicit origins of their funds during the placement stage. One method could be smurfing, right, from the movie right. Smurfs where large sums of illicit funds funds are broken down into smaller, less suspicious amounts that are then deposited into various bank accounts or even used to purchase assets. Another strategy involves the use of something known as mule accounts or in Barca, we call it account curl diet, which often belong to either individuals who are aware or unaware they are participating in a criminal enterprise. And most of the time, the target group that, that uh, criminals usually target would be you know, students, housewives, or even the elderly. And in Malaysia, for example, these mule accounts have been increasingly exploited as a channel to move money in and out without attracting attention from the authorities. Right. So then we move on to the layering stage of money laundering. What techniques do criminals um, use in this stage right? to to create layers of transactions and, and complex financial movements. Now, during the, the, the layering stage or the second stage here, criminals make the illegal funds harder to trace. That's the main objective, right? By engaging mm-hmm. in complex transactions, often through multiple countries. Techniques may involve rapid, move, rapid movement of money from one account to the other, purchasing or, sale, selling, purchasing or selling various financial instruments, or even the use of digital currencies per se. Now, criminals may also establish shell or front companies to further obscure the trail. For instance, we saw this in the 1MDB scandal again, where numerous shell companies were allegedly established worldwide to disguise the money trail and obscure its ownership. Right. So now we move on to the integration stage of money laundering. How do criminals then, you know, they did the first two steps and then how do they reintroduce the laundered money into the economy as seemingly legitimate funds? Now, being a circular process, here is where the monies come back to the criminals per se, mm. right? So the integration stage involves merging the laundered money back into the economy while making it difficult to distinguish it from genuine assets that they, do, that they already have. This often is achieved by investing in legal businesses purchasing high-value assets like real estate, artwork, or even luxury yachts, or even funding of Hollywood movies, or (laughs) engaging in other sophisticated financial transactions, right? So once this stage is reached, of course, like I said before, it becomes increasingly challenging to trace where the money had originally come from. Right. So how do anti-money laundering regulations, because we do have um, a lot of uh, regulations in place, um, how do they aim to combat money laundering effectively? Now, anti-money laundering uh, regulation uh, that has been set forth and the procedures work to deter, detect, and disrupt the process of money laundering in any stage, right? In the placement, layering, or integration stage. These rules require FIs, financial institutions, and designated non-financial businesses and professions, or DNFPPs for short, to implement robust controls such as, for example, uh, know your customer checks, monitoring transactions, or reporting suspicious activity and maintaining comprehensive records of their customers. Now, these procedures help provide a hostile environment for would-be launderers and equip 
equip gatekeepers per se and enforcement agencies with valuable intelligence in order to carry out investigation and put a stop to such activities per se. Right. And what are some of the common red flags or indicators that might suggest um, there is that, you know, suspicious, uh, suspicious sorry, financial activities or, or potential money laundering? Now, besides the huge sums of money being found at home, <laughs> now we also see red flags for potential money laundering include frequent cash deposits or withdrawals, rapid movement of money between accounts or institutions, transactions that are inconsistent with customers' normal behavior or his or her profile, transactions involving high-risk jurisdictions, and overly complicated transactions that do not seem to have any economic benefit per se. You know, we do have uh, certain money laundering sort of regulations within Malaysia itself. Could you um, tell, uh, sort of um, explain a little bit like what are some of the laws that, that govern um, these things in Malaysia? Now, if you look at the international body, the Financial Action Task Force or the FATF, right? They are, they are basically an authority figure which uh, lays down the framework for anti-mine laundering per se worldwide. Right. So as countries, as members even of the FATF, uh, Malaysian institutions, we call them reporting institutions, which is both uh, financial institutions and the NFPPs per se, uh, play a vital role in preventing mine laundering by putting through these AML policies and controls. Now, these may include robust customer due diligence, getting to know who you're doing business with, continuous transaction monitoring, effective training for staff to in order to detect red flags that I mentioned just now, and prompt reporting of suspicious transactions to authorities. And the way in which it works in Malaysia is that if there are any suspicious transactions that have been detected, they have to be reported directly to, to FID or the Financial Intelligence and, and Enforcement Department at Bandigara, Malaysia, in order for them to then disseminate this information to the relevant law enforcement agencies to do further investigation. Now, the role of these institutions is to make it as difficult as possible for criminals to abuse their services for money laundering purposes per se. Right. So just to, uh, to clarify, basically there is, because we are a, a globalized economy, so yeah. there is like um, at an international level, sort of um, principles and, and laws um, and regulations that are set. And then countries that are part of this global economy, um, their financial institutions such as banks and all, um, they will have to comply within this, this uh, sort of global regulations, is it? Yes, precisely. So we, we need to, if we do not, comply to such frameworks that we laid down by the FATF, we may be put in certain lists which are deemed as high risk. With that, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Raymond Ram. He's a certified fraud examiner and an anti-money laundering specialist at Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. After the break, we will be discussing challenges faced by anti-money laundering specialists such as Raymond, um, you know, when trying to deal with this issue. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Raymond Ram. He's a certified fraud examiner and an anti-money laundering specialist at Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. And he's giving me the 101 on money laundering and how to prevent it. So Raymond, um, let's talk about challenges that um, you know, anti-money laundering uh, specialists such as yourself and, and others face um, in your line of work. What are the usual obstacles that you all have to um, sort of try and get over? Now, AML specialists like us face a myriad of um, challenges, including evolving sophistication of my laundering techniques, its typologies, the increasing use of technology and digital platforms, difficulties in cross-border cooperation, and of course, the resource-intensive nature of AML compliance, which we've seen getting more and more expensive as we go further because of the emerging technology that's coming about. Now, moreover, they need to we need to balance the need of four effective AML controls with ensuring that these measures do not unduly impact the efficiency and convenience of legitimate banking services for its customers. Take, for instance, financial institutions is, of course, in competition with one another. Right. Now, it, it making it troublesome or tedious to open a bank account or maintain a relationship with an FI may push them towards other institutions per se. So we've got to find that balance between what are the type of information that we require from them, the type of controls that we have in place, and also making sure that we do not make it too tough for our customers per se. Can you tell, uh, provide some real-world examples of high-profile money laundering cases and also their impact on the global financial system? Now, a prominent example that we, we cannot uh, escape from is, of course, the 1MDB scandal that took right. place in Malaysia, right? Mm -hmm. So this demonstrated how money laundering on a grand scale can destabilize a country's economy and cause international financial reverberations, mm. right? It enables ongoing fraudulent or corrupt activities to go unchecked. Over $4.5 was allegedly misappropriated from state funds and laundered through a complex network of transactions, and shell companies leading to economic disruption. We could also see political fallout and significant reputational damage to Malaysia, right? So we can see that it's not, it's not something that when it happens, it happens in silo, right? Because energy, its impact is uh, it's a chain of reactions that would take place and would ultimately impact the reputation of a nation, no matter where it happens per se. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a case like 1MDB, right, it's, um, although it's primarily, it, it impacts Malaysians, but like you said, it's a global thing. It, it requires yes. cooperation um, from many parties on a global level as well. And so even combating it will require international cooperation. So could you explain that a little bit? How do international cooperation and information sharing among countries contribute to combating cross-border money laundering? I mean, as, as you rightly pointed out, we live in a global community, right? So with interconnected nodes, which facilitate our day-to-day -day activities and the supply and demand of crucial resources, right? Because we, we are not a standalone country anymore. We are all global citizens per se. Mm -hmm. Criminal activities are both facilitated and to some extent prevented due to the global nature of day-to-day -day transactions and the movement and the fast movement of funds that are going on. Now, international cooperation, information sharing are fundamental to combating cross-border money laundering. These practices can help trace the international flow of illicit funds, freeze or even confiscate laundered assets and bring criminals to justice. This is the main criteria of it, right? And they are facilitated and guided by 
international organizations like the FATF that I mentioned just now, and mechanisms such as mutual legal assistance treaties that we have. It's just that uh, I strongly believe that MLAs do work. It's just that it's not working on a timely basis at the moment, right? So making this a bit more easier and faster would bring things, um, would shed a better light on our efforts to deter money laundering per se. Right. Now, when we discuss something like money laundering, there are, it, it, get, it can get a little bit complex because... Um, for example, uh, you know, when, when, even when we file our taxes, there are, you know, people who hire accountants and, and whatnot, mm. auditors and all of that to, to sort of balance their, their tax books and, and whatnot, right? Um, and, and that's all completely legal. And then you also have um, illegal tax evasion, um, which ties, uh, which can tie into um, this topic we're talking about, which is money laundering. So could you explain that key difference between legal tax planning and illegal tax evasion concerning money laundering? Now, I mean, we have to put things into context again. Legal mm -hmm. tax planning or a form of tax avoidance mm -hmm. involves using existing tax laws to minimize right. tax liabilities. Whereas illegal tax evasion involves deliberately contravening uh, tax laws to avoid paying taxes, right? So we got we to understand the concept first. One mm -hmm. is doing things smartly and another is trying to not abide the law per se, right? Trying right. to go, uh, of trying to take another turn. So while both practices can involve moving money across borders or between entities, they become linked to money laundering when they involve concealment of illicit funds, right? So if you try to conceal the amount of monies you're making at certain sectors or incident businesses, or, or if there's a fraudulent act that's taken place of if it's corruption of a high-level politician that is trying to, you know, to cover up, that would involve tax evasion. That would not only involve that does not only involve tax evasion, that would be part of money laundering per se, cleaning mm. dirty money that has been acquired. Right. So on that same note, um, you know, I, I know that you are someone who's very passionate, um, uh, you know, about like cryptocurrency and how that, um, you know, is is changing the, the financial world as well. Um, crypto, cryptocurrency and blockchain, uh, blockchain technology as a whole. Um, how does the rise of digital currencies, right, Raymond? Um, we're yeah. talking about blockchain and, and all of these uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and whatnot. How do they pose challenges in the fight against money laundering? Because just as an outsider, even someone who's not necessarily an expert in, in any of this, right? It seems like, you know, we are looking even like uh, billionaires, um, ultra wealthy people, they can just take some illicit fund, uh, you know, perhaps funds that are, are illegitimate um, and then just put it into cryptocurrency. And then let's say Bitcoin skyrockets by 30%. Now that they just made a 30% yeah. gain and they can just switch it back to re regular uh, regular uh, currencies. Um, do you face these challenges in, in dealing with money laundering? Now, digital currencies and blockchain technology pose a unique challenge to combating money laundering. Mm -hmm. Now, this is due to the decentralized nature okay. and the potential for pseudo-anonymity. I won't say full anonymity. Mm -hmm. And the speed of cross-border and the cross-border nature of transactions per se. Now, they provide new tools for criminals to hide, move funds, making detection and enforcement more complex. Thus, regulators uh, are tasked to now to keep adapting with ex existing AML frameworks 
to address these emerging technologies. We have seen even the FATF come up with uh, guidelines, guidance materials in order to, to further reduce the risk of virtual assets being uh, exposed to such, such criminal activity per se. Now, even though blockchain promotes the idea of a transparent, decentralized ledger that we often talk about, we are still lacking one very big uh, part, which is the global consensus for adoption of a robust AML framework. Mm -hmm. FATF can be playing its part, putting down recommendations, right? putting out guidance materials, but we need a global consensus in how do different countries now regulate crypto exchanges, for example? Right? Do they require them to do KYC, to do know your customer policies? Do they require them to make uh, to, 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 call, to have ongoing monitoring of transactions? Do they require them to report any suspicious transactions? So you, Bangladesh Malaysia may be able to do this with the exchanges which are based in Malaysia. Right. But how about those that are in other countries? Mm -hmm. right? So because you can open up a wallet in various different jurisdictions and that could pose a danger, that could pose a risk. Because sometimes we cannot match between who owns which wallet per se. Even though you can look at a blockchain, you can look at transactions moving here and there, but I do not know who exactly owns certain wallet IDs per se. Right. And how do you combat that, right? Because like you said, um, it is different where, let's say if this is a licensed um, cryptocurrency exchange yeah. based in a particular country, then it abides by that country's laws and, and, and all is good. But, mm -hmm. you know, even when certain countries, um, let's say Malaysia, they say, okay, we're going to ban this platform and that platform. Mm -hmm. um, anybody, and we are not talking about, you know, professional hackers and, and, you know, IT geniuses and whatnot, just random people, they can still access those platforms that are banned just by using VPN and, and so on and so forth yeah. and other methods. So how do you combat, uh, combat something that is um, so fluid and constantly evolving and adapting to various um, security measures? I mean, at the end of the day, I believe it's, it's acceptance and regulation, right? Mm -hmm. So we need we need to, countries, countries first need to accept that cryptocurrencies, uh, the use of the blockchain will not be going away anytime soon, mm -hmm. right? We need to understand that it's a new reality that's there, like, like AI, right? Like artificial intelligence, it's right. a new reality that's there. So now we've got to keep up to pace with the regulations that we come up with. Right? We have certain countries that are banning the use of even cryptocurrency to some extent. Mm -hmm. But we, we, while you're banning the use of cryptocurrencies, you are not addressing the elephant they do because there will be people still using it. Right. Right? And you're also promoting underground economies per se. So I think the first thing that countries need to do is to accept. Accept that it's here. And now how do we now uh, look towards regulating it? How do we clamp down on those that are running illegal exchanges or illegal businesses when it comes to, to such technology per se. Right. All right. So with that in mind, um, before we wrap this conversation up, um, what are your recommendations? What improvements could be made to current anti-money laundering regulations to enhance their effectiveness? Well, there's a few recommendations I would like to, to make and hopefully we see the adoption of such recommendations going forward. Now, first is increasing technological adoption, right? We can see uh, emerging technologies are there, such as artificial intelligence, machine learning. This all should be adopted in transaction monitoring, assessment, and making sure we can pick up on the red flags that I've discussed just now. Number two would be, of course, enhancing international cooperation. And here, the focus should be reducing the time frame when it comes to, for example, MLAs, mutual legal assistance that's being done, whether uh, information is shared on time, uh, assets can be recovered on time and whatnot. 
Number three, I will talk about extending AML requirements, uh, or not say extending AML requirements, but supporting those that are now designated as reporting institutions. And these are, you know, for example, banks, they have been reporting institutions for quite some time now, but the focus should also be posed on uh, the designated non-financial businesses and professions where sometimes we are not stringently guided on what is supposed to be done when it comes to our nature of business. Number four, we also talk about strengthening enforcement, mm -hmm. making sure that uh, this, uh, the authorities are well-equipped and they, uh, they would conduct investigation thoroughly and be able to prosecute cases of money laundering. And another one which I believe is very important is also enhancing transparency. We have one, uh, one particular area that we are not utterly focused on at the moment, and it's known as beneficial ownership transparency. Right. Getting to know who exactly is sitting behind businesses. Because ultimately, if front companies are set up, bank accounts are open, monies can be transferred in and out. We, do not, we would not know who is the actual owner, who, who is the beneficial owner. It could be a high-level corrupt politician. It could be a criminal. It could be a drug trafficker. It could be whoever. Right? So we need enhanced transparency being put in place in order to manage these instances or prevent the instances of money laundering per se. On that note, Raymond, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Raymond Ram from Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.